Today, we kick off a new teaching series, which I'm super excited about. But before we launch into the series, let me just address a couple of complaints that have come in about our online services around the area of product placement. And I just want to say we're really sorry. We would never condone that kind of behavior here at KXE. That's obviously a joke. Anyway, a massive welcome if you are joining us for the first time. We are beginning a new teaching series called Reconciled, the way of Jesus and the way of the cross. Now, the vision for this series is we want to address some of what's playing out right now in the culture around us. We've said recently that the COVID-19 has forced us into a wilderness experience. Now, the purpose of the wilderness, at least biblically speaking, in the silence of the desert, the soul comes out of hiding and you begin to get a clearer picture of how you're actually doing. There's also an invitation in the wilderness to encounter God. It's often the place where God commissions and speaks destiny over his people. He draws them into the wilderness, encounters them and sends them back. Now what's true at an individual level I think is true at a societal level. The whole of our culture has experienced this wilderness moment where we're seeing the soul of our society more clearly and the cracks that have always been present. We're seeing them for what they really are. So in recent weeks, we've seen systemic racism that's been exposed in a whole new way since the death of George Floyd. The cracks were there for a very long time, but we're seeing them with greater clarity. But there are other cracks that are emerging, that are widening, and we're beginning to see them. And if we enter into a recession, again, those cracks are potentially going to widen. And it is our message, as well as our ministry, as the people of God, the people of Jesus, to be agents of reconciliation. You see, the vision of this series is to highlight some of the key characteristics of the reconciliation journey and highlight some of the key movements that need to take place in our hearts before they take place in our actions. So we're going to look at five questions that are either asked to Jesus or Jesus asks others. Here's the five questions we're going to look at. Who is my neighbour? Secondly, who's the greatest? The question of supremacy. Number three, who do you say that I am? Number Four, how can I be saved? And number five, who is invited? Now, behind these questions are five movements of the heart and movements of the soul. Firstly, then laying aside prejudice. Secondly, laying aside power. Thirdly, laying aside pride, the need to be right. Fourthly, laying aside religion, the need to be the saviour, to be the Messiah. It's very hard to receive the Messiah when you are busy being the Messiah. And number five, laying the table, being people of radical hospitality. Now today we're going to launch the series, we're going to look at the first question then, who is my neighbour? And we're going to launch into a well-known story in the Gospel narratives, the story of the Good Samaritan. So let's read it together. If you've got a Bible, you might want to turn to Luke chapter 10, grab your smartphone or your physical copy of the scriptures and let's read together. So Luke 10 verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Let's just stop right there. That's the framing question for this whole conversation. Now, the question isn't really about quantity of life. 
In other words, life beyond the grave. The expert in the law is asking about life before the grave. In other words, it's a life that starts now and lasts for all eternity. The question is essentially, how can I live life really well? How can I flourish? Jesus responds, what is written in the law? How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbour as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied, do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbour? You see, the guy here, he quotes the law. He actually quotes Deuteronomy chapter six, which is the well-known prayer known by Jews of the time and Jews of our time as the Shema. Listen to the Shema. This, this prayer is prayed daily by the Jewish community. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's the framing statement of the Shema. It's around the oneness of God. If we are to reflect the oneness of God to the world around us, we have to be at one. That's why this command about loving your neighbour is so important. If we're to show the world the oneness of God, we can't hate our neighbours. We can't neglect our neighbours. So the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road. When you lie down and when you get up, tie them as symbols on your hands. Put them on your smartphones. as a modern day paraphrase. Bind them on your foreheads. Wear them on your t-shirts. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Remember the framing question, how can I inherit eternal life? How do I live life really well? Jesus says it boils down to these two commands which help us reflect the oneness of God. Love God, be at one with God and love your neighbour. Jesus says that this commandment summarises all of the law and all of the prophets. In fact, the Apostle Paul echoes this in Galatians 5. He says the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbour as yourself. Remember the framing question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? How can I live life really well? Well, this is Paul basically saying it really boils down to this. Love your neighbour as you love yourself. Now, at this point, this expert in the law is trying to justify himself. So he, he throws back the question, well, like, who's my neighbour? I guess I have been a great neighbour, depending on how you define who is your neighbour. And then Jesus answers the question. You can imagine the expert thinking, well, if my neighbour's the one near to me, then yeah, I, I feel like I've been a great neighbour. If I love the one who's known to me, then yeah, I think I've been a really good neighbour. And Jesus says, yes to those that are near to you, yes to those that are known to you. But it's more than that. In terms of the limits of your love, it moves beyond the near, moves beyond the known. And then he tells this story. So let's keep reading. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his 
own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I'll reimburse you any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. You see, there are three levels to this story. The last two levels involve a twist that would have shaken the audience listening to Jesus. Jesus begins to extend the limits of our love when it comes to who is my neighbour. He says yes to those that are near to you. In other words, geographical proximity. Yes to those that are known to you, your friends and your acquaintances. But a neighbour is the one who needs you. Those near to you, those known to you, those needed by you. So he talks of this story of someone getting attacked and left on the roadside. And the priest walks by and does nothing. Can you see what Jesus is doing here? He's highlighting the corruption in the temple system and in the Jewish hierarchies. In other words, the priests that are meant to represent God aren't doing their job. God is a God of compassion and the priests, the temple priests, are just walking them by and neglecting the poorest in society. Then the Levite. Now, the Levites were the tribe that oversaw the worship in the temple. They're the worship leaders of the day. The Levite walks by and does nothing. This is Jesus basically echoing the words of the prophet, saying like worship and justice have been divorced right now in, in this context of first century Judaism. People are worshipping God but neglecting justice and, and that breaks the heart of God. So the Levite walking past just tells the story of what's actually happening in the first century. Worship, justice, they've been completely divorced. And then the Samaritan comes and he actually gets off his donkey. He steps in and demonstrates compassion. Who, who is your neighbour? This story answers your neighbour is the one in need of your help, the one in need of your mercy. We're living in days where the need is so, so great. As we entered into lockdown, the Chancellor said this, now more than at any time in our history, we will be judged by our capacity for compassion. When this is over, and it will be over, we want to look back on this moment and remember the many small acts of kindness done by us and to us. Now, the way I heard that was an invitation to the church to step up and be a people of compassion. Our God is a God of compassion. And for us to reflect God to the world, we need to be a people of compassion. You see, this is a, a theme that runs right the way through the scriptures. God's heart for the poor, the marginalized and the broken. Listen to these words from Proverbs chapter 14. Whoever oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker, but whoever is kind to the needy honours God. You see, the one in need of your help, they're a human being, which means they're made in the image and likeness of God. The phrase image of God that comes out of the Genesis story of creation, the Hebrew term that's used is tselem. A better translation would be statue of God. And we're not dead, inanimate statues. No, we are living statues containing the breath of God himself. And as statues, we represent and reflect our maker. That's the purpose of statues. They represent something. That's why we're in these conversations right now in this cultural moment about pulling down certain statues because of what they represent. 
Well, your neighbour, the one in need of your help, they represent God, which is why the writer of this proverb says, look, to oppress your neighbour who's made in the image and likeness of God is the same thing as oppressing God himself. That's why Jesus says of the greatest commandment, he said the second one, loving your neighbour, is like the first one, loving God, because your neighbour's made in the image of God. So you cannot say it makes no sense. I love God, but I don't love Derek or whoever your neighbour might be. It's logically incompatible. It doesn't work. To love God is to love those made in his image and likeness. You see, the right the way through the prophets, when there's this separation between love of God and love of neighbour, God speaks in and says, no, it doesn't work like that. You see, the prophets were basically trying to speak into the leadership structures of the nation of Israel and say, look, there's two misdirected loves that that mean you're pointed in a really bad trajectory. And it's the trajectory that led them into exile in Babylon. The first misdirected love is around worship. You're not loving God anymore, which was the first of the great commandments. You're You're worshipping idols. But secondly, you're misdirecting love towards neighbour. It's all about directing love towards those that are near you and known to you, but those in need of you. You're neglecting the poor, the widow, the orphan, the marginalised in society. So the prophets begin to speak up and say, no, they carry the heart of God speaking to his people, saying, no, loving your neighbour, those in need of you, is loving God. Listen to some of this language then, Amos 5, it's pretty intense language. God says, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I won't accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river and righteousness like a never failing stream. This is God saying love of God and love of neighbour have to go together. If they get separated, the actual songs of worship are a stench to our God. This is intense language. Listen to this one, similar, Isaiah 58, as the prophet says, is this not the kind of fasting I've chosen? You see, the nation of Israel were fasting, trying to bend God's arm to do what they wanted him to do. And God said, no, 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 this is the kind of fasting that I enjoy, to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard you see this is God speaking through the prophet saying you cannot love God and neglect your neighbor it does not work You see, we're in a moment right now where the need in our culture is just so huge and it's constantly rising. I I believe this is a moment for us to to recognise how serious this situation is. 
you know, since COVID-19, a further 1.1 million people have fallen below the poverty line. There were already millions below, but now a further 1.1 million. It means the total number of children living below the poverty line in our nation is 4.5 million people. Unemployment is set to rise drastically, terrifyingly. We know some of the stories of what's happening with food demands and food poverty. Um, the Love Your Neighbour initiative, the, the foundation of that initiative is in this story of the Good Samaritan. The initiative is hundreds of churches across the nation collaborating to serve those most in need in our society. The food bank we run as a church is run in partnership with this Love Your Neighbour initiative. But some of the stories coming through the Love Your Neighbour initiative, they're heartbreaking. I was on a call this last week with some of the church pastors, hearing some of what they're experiencing in their communities. Like I think 1.5 million people, this is according to a YouGov poll, have experienced a day without any food since lockdown. That isn't like choosing to fast. That's a day where they couldn't find any way of accessing food. So they went a day without food and the numbers are growing. In this one community, they found someone, an elderly gentleman that hadn't eaten for a few days. And when they found him, he was sucking on a tea bag. He, he was sucking on a tea bag because his hunger was so intense. And they arrived with food to demonstrate God's love in practical ways. We're in conversations with our team about how we can expand some of our compassion ministries and, and work more closely with partners. Because if a recession hits, these needs, poverty all around us is going to rise. We need to call the church to stand up, to call the church to generosity. People have been incredibly generous in this last season but we also need generosity with time people sacrificing time to serve in some of these initiatives sacrificing energy and resources so that we can serve our neighbors yes we want to love God but part of our loving God is loving our neighbor as we love ourselves. our neighbor isn't just the one near to us isn't just the one known by us our neighbor is the one in need of us you know the word reconciliation, it's a compound word, two words brought together. Re, meaning back, consolere, the Latin verb, to bring together, literally means to bring back together. Now we might not think of caring for those in need in society as reconciliation, but it is because we've been disconnected from those in need. We've stood at a safe distance from those in need. Reconciliation means bringing back together where their suffering becomes our suffering, where their well-being is connected to our well-being. There needs to be reconciliation. Your neighbour isn't just the one near to you. It's not just just the one known to you is the one in need of you. Here's the second layer of the story. Back to the text then. This is known as the story of the good Samaritan. In other words, this is a story about race. Your neighbour isn't just the one near to you, not just the one known to you, not just the one needed by you, but the one not like you. 
Now here's the point of the ramifications of sin from the beginning of the story through to the end. Sin leads to separation. You see, from the beginning in Genesis onwards, as sin enters the story, you can see more and more division. So Adam and Eve get separated. God says, because of your sin, in other words, this is your choice, not my choice. I'm going to put enmity between you. In other words, there's going to be hostility between you. And he says to Adam, you will rule over her and she will strike your heel. In other words, any form of oppression of women is connected to the fall. It's connected to sin. It's the byproduct of sin in our lives. It's impossible to love God and not love your neighbour. It's impossible to love God and oppress women or to be complicit in systems that bring oppression to women. There needs to be reconciliation. But the story of separation continues after Adam and Eve. Cain kills his brother Abel. And when God confronts Cain, do you know what Cain says? He says, am I my brother's keeper? It's one of the most ridiculous questions in all of scripture. This is Cain abdicating responsibility. The answer is like, yes, yes, you're your brother's keeper. Yes, you have responsibility for your fellow humanity. But sin creates separation. And the spiral continues. Abraham has two kids. Isaac and Ishmael, there's division between them. And that division between Isaac and Ishmael has created generations and centuries of racial tension. Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. You know the story? There's division between them, hatred, hostility between them. Jacob has 12 sons, that's a lot of sons. Um, But the brothers sell Joseph into slavery. That's hatred and hostility. Those 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel, this kingdom of Israel. Eventually the kingdom divides. That's hostility. The two southern tribes and the 10 northern tribes. And then the 10 northern tribes, there's breakdown there too. And two of the tribes become known as the Samaritans. So when Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan, there is a backstory of division, of hatred that's the result of sin because sin leads to separation. So the Jews and the Samaritans in the first century, they hated each other. When the Jews came back from exile, it was these two northern tribes, the Samaritans, that tried to get in the way of the Jewish people rebuilding their temple and worshipping God in the heart of Jerusalem. In fact, the Samaritans had built their own temple on Mount Gerizim. They thought that was the true and proper place of worship. In fact, in the second century BC, some of the Jewish armies went to Mount Gerizim and destroyed the temple on that mountain. So you can see that there was just ongoing hatred and division. So when Jesus tells this story, he basically uses as the hero in the story, the one the Jewish people hated the most, their enemy. And this Samaritan is described as good. Even the phrase good Samaritan, the crowd listening would be like, we think we misheard you. Did you say good Samaritan? You see, Jesus is saying your neighbour isn't just the one near to you, known to you, needed by you, it's the one not like you. Like we've seen in recent weeks, this crack exposed so clearly of systemic racism and oppression. It's impossible to love God and to allow systems of racism that are built on sin. They are the effect of sin. We need reconciliation to be brought back 
together. You see, this is the message we've been given to proclaim. It's the message of the cross. There is power in the message of the cross. This is Ephesians 2, to break the dividing wall of hostility. You see, the cross is the place where sins are forgiven, separated from us as far as the east is from the west. So sin creates separation, but when sins are dealt with, there can be healing and transformation of bringing back together. I love this description in 2 Corinthians verse chapter 5 verse 18. Paul says all of this is from God who gave us the ministry of reconciliation. This is our message, the message of the cross. This is our ministry and the culture needs the church to rise up with a ministry and a message of reconciliation. Now, there's a third layer to the story, and this is another big twist. Like the Good Samaritan twist was, was one like, whoa, wasn't expecting a Samaritan in the story. But here's one more twist. The Samaritan is the hero. Now, a number of theologians over the years have described this story as allegorical. In other words, each person in the story represents someone in the actual audience listening to Jesus. So who is Jesus in the story? And this is the bit that's mind blowing. Jesus is the Samaritan, right? So he takes on the role of the despised one, the outsider. Now, this is what we see play out in the Gospels. Jesus is persecuted. He's despised. It says in John chapter one that he came to his own and his own did not recognize him. He is the stranger in the story that actually brings about healing and reconciliation. He's the stranger that through his life, death and resurrection, we can become friends with God. For Jesus to basically equate himself in the story with the Samaritan, that's like, oh my goodness, that's, that's unbelievable. But who's the expert in the law? The one that sees themselves as kind of righteous, you know, got it all together, got this thing down. And Jesus says, you know who you are in the story? You're the one on the road, broken. Like You, you think you've got it all together. What, what you don't realise is you're the one with deep wounds that you need nursing. You're asking the right question about inheriting eternal life, living life fully. But you have this kind of blinkered view of your neighbour. You think it's those near to you and those known to you, those just like you. But because of that, you're trying to love God, but you're not loving your neighbour, those that are in need of you and those that are not like you. And therefore you are not living life fully. You see, there's an invitation towards repentance for this expert in the law, the one that thought they were righteous. Jesus says, I've come as an outsider, the strange one, to bring healing because I can see that you are broken and you need your wounds to be attended to. Now, I'm guessing for the expert in the law, they were expecting them to be the hero in the story and suddenly they're the one on the roadside like begging and in desperate need and Jesus is saying it's okay I'm here. You see for many of us in this moment there's a deep desire to be the hero in the story, to be the saviour. You know we're going to fight against you know racial oppression and systemic racism and we're going to fight against injustice and the inequality that exists between the rich and the, and the poor and we're going to be the rescuers and that's so much of that is right and pure but so much of it is distorted. Jesus says I, I want to heal you first. I want to reconcile you to God because it's only when you've experienced that healing can you be an agent of healing. 
So earlier we looked at 2 Corinthians 5 verse 18. It says, all this is from God who gave us the ministry of reconciliation. But I cut out a few words and the words that I cut out are really key. You ready for them now? Who reconciled us to himself through Christ. In other words, we become ministers of reconciliation as we realise first and foremost, we're the ones broken. Like we're the ones that in our hearts, there are all sorts of prejudice. There is sin and the sin has led to separation. The problem isn't out there. The problem's in here. I need to be reconciled. Reconciled to God, like brought back to God, reconciled to myself, like brought back to myself, back to my senses. And when that's taken place, I need to be reconciled with those around me. The limits of my love can't be those near to me, those known to me. It has to go beyond that. If I truly love God and therefore truly love my neighbour, it has to extend to those that are in need and those that are not like See, that's what the story of the Good Samaritan is all about. So, yes, there's an opportunity for us as we engage in this series to think about these movements in our heart and in our soul. Yes, we want to equip people to be ministers of reconciliation. But there's a job we first do as we recognise we're on the roadside and we need a saviour. But we don't have to be the saviour. We can't be the saviour. We need Jesus to come and he might come as a stranger. And it might be hard to recognise him as he moves towards us. But when he does, he washes away sin and therefore breaks dividing walls of hostility. And then he invites us into a better story, a story of bringing back together. This is our ministry and this is our message.